Good morning. I don't know what I'm doing. Putting the wrong thing down, all shaken up. Today, we are in week two of our Heroes and Villains series. And I think uh, this is a kind of fun. Like we look at our culture, society, we see movies all over the place and like superheroes and villains and like it's something that I think catches our imagination. It catches us and I think it's because we recognize like deep down that something is wrong with the world and we want a hero that we can look to, to model, a hero that will take away a lot of the, the struggles and the, the things of this life and kind of lift us out of our situations and make everything better. And I know at our house, uh, we didn't ever have to worry about villains or anything like that because we had our own superheroes living right with us. Aren't they great? That was back in the day a long time ago, and man, time flies. But you know, even superheroes sometimes get, they get tired from all of their work, all their labor, all their superhero things, so they got to take a break. And sometimes you just got to kick back and play some cards, chill, hang out, and just do what normal people do. But we're going to talk about some heroes and villains in Scripture. And when we read Scripture, I think sometimes we can kind of idolize certain characters and kind of villainize other ones because we have this tendency to amplify characteristics in people and like the good things or really amplify the bad things in people. And, and sometimes we get this kind of distorted picture of who they really are. And we can do that with one another as well. Especially those people on the other side of the political spectrum, right? The villains, the enemies. Like before you know it, they are not really human. They're this twisted caricature of some evil, twisted person because we can't relate to them at all. But you know, the thing is, if we can actually connect with them, get to know them, get to know their stories, their background, their hearts, who they are as a person, their hopes and dreams, we'll find that we have a lot more in common than we think we do. A lot more in common. They actually become people. And so the characters in the Bible really are no different. They're no different. So heroes like Noah Abraham, Moses, Deborah, Samuel, Ruth, David, Elijah, Esther, all of these men and women who are used greatly by God, they're heroes, yes, but they're also filled with a lot of the same flaws that you and I have. And today we're going to look at the life of a man named Joseph. Now Joseph seems to be one of the better good guys, because some of the good guys, the heroes in Scripture, you can see they're kind of messed up. And Joseph is one of those guys that it's a little hard to see some of that side to him. So he, had, he has less of the obvious flaws that we might see. But his story is found in Genesis 37 through 50. And if you have time this week, I'd encourage you to go and read that story. There's a lot of good things in there that we're not going to be able to cover today. But go and read his story. Uh, because... It's just really good. There's just nuggets in there that are so good. But before we get into Joseph, I want to give kind of a timeline of kind of where we're sitting. So we got the Bible, right? And so we've got the, the New Testament over here. And this is when Jesus comes and everything after the early church, Jesus in the New Testament. And then the Old Testament is before Jesus. So we've got Genesis through Malachi. And all the way in the very beginning, Genesis is a book of beginnings, right? 
So before the kings of Israel, before the judges, before the exodus and Moses, you have the beginnings in Genesis. And so Genesis 1 through 11 is like ancient kind of history, like the, the very origins of the, the earth, origins of the world. And, and so there's all thousands of years kind of compacted into these 11 chapters in the Bible. And then at chapter 12, things start to shift and it changes and it focuses in on a story of one person and his descendants after him. That man was Abraham. Abraham. And Abraham is a man that had faith in, and God used him. He made a covenant with him. And he promised that he would bless him, that he would give him land, he would give him descendants. And through his seed, all of the earth, all of the nations would be blessed. And that theme is carried throughout Scripture. And I think it's important to note this theme because that reflects the heart of God. That God doesn't just bless us to bless us. He doesn't just give us stuff and give us blessing just so we can hoard it and do what we want with it. But his intention is for us to bless other people. And that's a theme all through, all through Scripture. You see this again and again and again. All right? And if we zoom out even more in the Bible, we'll find it, we'll discover God who is continually reaching out to humanity. Continually breaking into our world, inviting us into a relationship, often inviting us into a a different way to live. And and we're going to see this in the story of Joseph as well. All right, so you ready? Let's give a little bit of background about Joseph. Joseph comes from kind of a dysfunctional family. His family's messed up. How many of you have some dysfunctional families? Yeah, lots of hands, right? My family's messed up. We've all got some dysfunction in our families, right? So Joseph is a guy that basically has four moms. He's got four moms. It's kind of like the sister wives. This was the inspiration behind the sister wives. Not really. But he's got four moms. And the, the thing of it is like his dad, Jacob, is actually married to his cousin, which is kind of weird and twisted, Right? Like, that was okay back then, but nowadays it just isn't. Although, funny fact, I just realized that... Did you know in Wisconsin you can marry your cousin? You did. I just learned this last week. Uh, Zachary and Sydney went to get their marriage license. And I don't know how this came up. They're not cousins. Um, but apparently, if, if one of you is sterile, or like if you're both over 55 or something, you can marry your cousin. So there you go, you guys. If you ever had that desire, you want to marry your cousin, like, I gave you the keys to make that happen. Anyway. <laughs> All right, so, so back to Joseph. Joseph has, has four moms, and so Jacob is married to his cousin. And this is kind of a twisted thing, too, because he's not just married to his cousin. He's married to two of his cousins and their sisters. Messed up. And so he's tricked the first, he wants Rachel. She's this like fine, fine looking woman. He sees her and he wants her. And then his uncle, like he tricks him so that he marries Rachel's older sister first. And he didn't know somehow they got married. He married her. He didn't know. But then a week later, he can marry Rachel. So he's married to two sisters within a week's time. Not a good way to start a marriage, right? And then so, He's married the two, and then Rachel can't have kids. She doesn't have the ability to have kids. Leah, on the other hand, is a baby-making machine. And she produces four sons for Jacob right off the bat. Right off the bat. And so Rachel is desperate. And so in her desperation, she says to Jacob, Here, take my servant Bilhah and sleep with her, and that way I can have children through her. And Jacob is like, What a great idea. Why didn't I think of that? <laughs> 
And so he sleeps with Bilhah, and she ends up having two sons for Jacob. And then Leah recognizes, oh, I can't have children anymore. I'm not having any. So she gives, she says, Jacob, here, take my servant Zilpah and sleep with her. And Jacob's like, okay, I'll do that. And so he does that, and she ends up having two more kids for him, so two sons. So he's up to eight sons. And then in there, like, Leah is able to have two more sons. So he's got ten sons. Rachel still hasn't had any. And then finally, she is able to produce a son for Joseph, or for Jacob. And this is Joseph, son number 11. And he is instantly daddy's favorite son. How many of you are the favorite son or daughter in your house? I got some people that know. How many of you are sitting next to the favorite? (laughs) Yes. So Joseph, now beginning in chapter 37, is daddy's boy. He's daddy's favorite. And he comes from a family of shepherds. And not only is he daddy's boy, he's kind of the the goody-goody, the tattletale that his dad sends him to go and check on his brothers all the time. So he's constantly checking and telling uh, his dad everything that they're doing wrong. And then to make it really obvious that Jacob, or that Joseph is the favorite, like Jacob gives him this beautiful robe full of colors, splashing, and just beautiful, singling him out as daddy's favorite, right? And then Joseph doesn't help matters because He's got these dreams. He has dreams. And then he likes to tell his brothers about them. And they're all about like them surrounding him. And they're bowing down to him. And you know that's not going to really endear your brothers to you at all. So they don't like him at all. They hate him. And so you, you find this person in Joseph where it seems like he's constantly poking the bear. Right? Just kind of poking and, and just doing this because he can and thinks he can get away with it. But you know, sooner or later, the bear is going to bite you. So here's kind of what happens. Joseph is 17 years old. And his father sends him to check on his brothers. So how many, do you have high school kids? High schoolers? A few? Do you guys like it when your parents ask you to do things? Yeah. So Jacob sends Joseph to Shechem, which is 50 miles from where they are. He sends them to go check on your brothers. That's a long distance. That's almost from here to Milwaukee. And then when Joseph gets there, he finds out they're not there. He has to go further on to Hebron, which is about another 25 miles and about another day's journey. I don't think I'd be very happy, right? But so he goes 75 miles to check on his brothers. And then as he gets there, his brothers see him coming. They see him coming because he's got this beautiful coat just radiating in the sunlight. And instantly they start plotting to kill him. They want him dead. Like literally. Family dysfunction. Family dysfunction. And so as they talk about this, they, they kind of cooler heads prevail a little bit. And, and they decide instead to put him in this empty cistern. And so they put him there, and then soon there's some Ishmaelite traders that come. And here's a little Ishmaelite traders, kind of funny, are other distant relatives of this family because Joseph's great-granddad, Abraham, and his great-grandmom, Sarah, like she couldn't have kids, so she said to Abraham, here, take my servant and have like sleep with her so that we can have children through her, and that caused a whole bunch of other mess, Right? So if you catch nothing else beside anything else today, like if your wife ever has you or tells you to sleep with another woman, don't do it. 
Don't do it. That's just dumb. It's bad news. Bad things happen. I'm telling you. You guys should be saying amen. Amen. I'm trying to help you. But the funny, this is the people that God used to bless the world, right? This is the kind of people that God used to bring blessing to the world. There are no perfect people outside of Jesus. Like, perfect people are excluded. So, anyway, Joseph's brothers sell him. The Ishmaelite traders take him. And then Joseph, daddy's little favorite, is now a slave. He's a slave. And his brothers have to cover this up. So they take off his beautiful robe. They rip it into shreds. They put blood on it. And then they bring it home to dad and say, Dad, look what we found. Do you think it's your son's? Pretend they don't know anything, and Jacob is devastated, and he thinks his son is dead and devoured by a wild animal. And so Joseph is taken to Egypt, and he's sold to a man named Potiphar. And Potiphar is an officer of Pharaoh, right? He's officer of Pharaoh. He's captain of the palace guards, who's kind of a big deal. And um, Joseph, in the middle of this, will recognize that he's been abandoned. He's been abandoned. He's been sold by his own family. Uh, The same people that were supposed to have his back, the same people that were supposed to care for him, they sold him. And now he's in the middle of nowhere. This land that he's never been, never seen, a different culture, a different language, everything. He's completely alone, and everything is completely different, starting from square one. And I think sometimes when we read Scripture, it's... It's so easy just to kind of, it's, it's written like so factually, right? So we miss all the little things in there that you just kind of wrestle with, like what these guys are actually going through. Joseph was abandoned. Have you ever felt like you've been forgotten? Like nobody sees you, like, like nobody cares. Just kind of wondering, like, what is the purpose of it all? What's the purpose? Like life as you know, it might be gone. And, and maybe you felt like you're punished for something, like something isn't going right. And I think it's important to note that just because you might feel that way, it doesn't mean that God has abandoned you. It doesn't mean that God has abandoned you. Do you think God is with Joseph? Do you think God is with Joseph? The scripture tells us, as a matter of fact, he was. The Lord was with Joseph. And God is with you. And all this stuff. Psalm 34 says, The Lord is close to the brokenhearted. He rescues those whose spirits are crushed. And even though things surely weren't going according to plan, at least in Joseph's mind, God is with him. He never left him. And he caused everything he did to succeed. So Joseph is eventually, he's succeeding, and Potiphar sees this. This doesn't go unnoticed. So Potiphar puts him in charge of everything in his house. And Joseph is succeeding. And so as Potiphar puts him in charge, Scripture says the Lord began to bless Potiphar and his household because of Joseph. He did it for Joseph's sake. And so things begin to take a turn. Joseph begins to start thriving, and things all around him are flourishing. And then a woman comes into the picture. A woman comes into the picture. And that woman happened to be no less than Potiphar's wife. Right? And we were told that Joseph was handsome, and he was well-built. And Potiphar's wife began to lust after him. And she would begin to try to entice him, saying, Joseph, come sleep with me. And Joseph wouldn't have any of that. He learned from his dad and his great-granddad that that's not a good idea. 
But he said, he responds, he says, look, my master trusts me with everything in his entire household. No one here has more authority than I do. He's held back nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How could I do such a wicked thing? It would be a great sin against God. And do you think there was temptation? Do you think he was tempted to do that? I would say so. He's a man. Temptation was real. It was there. But as she began to pressure him again and again, Joseph began to go outside around ways to avoid her completely. And one day, though, she grabbed hold of him and surprised him. She grabbed his cloak, and he ran. He ran from the temptation, but she still held on to his cloak. And as she did that, she decided she's going to tell everybody that Joseph came into her room and tried to rape her. I don't know how you get from wanting him to just accusing him of rape, but that's kind of the story. And so Potiphar is furious, and he throws Joseph in the prison. And so it's good to break for a minute and just ask this question. Like, have you ever done everything right, done everything that you were supposed to do, done all the right things, and then you just become a victim of circumstances? Has that ever happened to anybody? It's like, seriously, what? And then you're finding, you just ask yourself, like, why? Why? Right? Like, why? Why did this happen? I did all the right stuff. I did all the right things. Why did this happen? God, where are you? Haven't I been through enough? And think about this, because this is devastating. Joseph is betrayed by his brothers, his own flesh and blood. He's sold as a slave, taken to a distant land. He's alone, isolated, and he becomes somebody else's property. And yet in all of this, he still maintains his integrity. He still maintains his integrity. He lives rightly. He does all the right things. He fears God, and God blesses him. He puts him in a position of authority, only to have it all fall to the ground. And now Joseph is in a worse place than what he was when it all started. How could he not wonder? Why, God? Why are you doing this to us? Why? Or maybe what's the point? What's the point? I did the right thing and look at where it got me. Look where it got me. And as scripture again says, the Lord is with Joseph in the prison and he showed him his faithful love. And I want you to note this. Our circumstances do not reflect how God feels about us. Joseph's circumstances would say completely otherwise in how he was feeling. But our circumstances do not Determine. It does not reveal how God feels about us. You guys might be going through the thick of it, right in the middle of the trenches, and it doesn't mean that God is angry with you. It doesn't mean he's disappointed in you. It doesn't mean he's forgotten you. And on the other side, you guys might be experiencing some of that blessing. Everything is going right. Things are falling into place. And that doesn't necessarily mean either that God is just pouring out his blessing because you're so good. So our circumstances don't always reflect how God feels about us. God did not forget Joseph, and he has not forgotten you. So we see this kind of pattern again. The Lord 
is with Joseph in the prison. Joseph begins to succeed, and he does. The, the warden puts him in charge of everything again. And so we see this cycle, Joseph's misfortune and God's blessing. God is, is working. God is doing things. And then as we get to chapter 40, we find out that it is a bad idea to offend Pharaoh. You don't want to do it, because we find out his chief cupbearer and his baker offend him, and Pharaoh just has them thrown in the prison. And they're, with, they're there with Joseph. And one morning, or one night, God gives them a dream. And it messes them up. And they're like all worried about it the next morning. And they're going to everybody like, who can tell me what this means? Like, I don't know what this means. And they're all worried, right? And so Joseph, he sees them. He sees it with compassion. And he says, guys, what's wrong? What's going on? And he says, we have had a dream last night. And nobody can tell us what it means. I don't know anybody that really has had that happen in my life or that's such a big thing, but back in this time it was. But Joseph said, interpreting dreams is God's business. Go ahead and tell me your dream. And so the cupbearer tells him the dream, and there's good news for the cupbearer. Joseph said that God is going to restore you, or Pharaoh is going to restore you to your position in three days. So that's good news. And then after he does this, he says, but remember me and tell Pharaoh what I did so that I can get out of this prison. Because even though he's kind of commanding everything, like he's, it's not a good place to be in, right? And then the baker. And so he gets to the baker's dream. And the baker's dream meant that, uh, yeah, just bad stuff. He says, in three days, Pharaoh is going to impale your body on a pole. And birds are going to come and eat your flesh. I don't know about you, but I have to wonder. Like, this guy's already worried. He's already kind of freaking out. Like, just give the guy a break and pretend he has something else to do or something. So, like, you tell him he's going to become shish kebab for birds. Like, that's not going to help him any. But things happen exactly as Joseph says. And the cupbearer restored, the baker is executed, and the cupbearer forgets all about Joseph. He forgets all about him. And once again, Joseph is left alone, and he's forgotten for another two years. Two years more in the prison. And then finally, Pharaoh has a dream, and Pharaoh is disturbed. And he goes out to all the wise men and magicians, and he wants to know the interpretation of his dream, and nobody can tell him. And then the cupbearer says, like, oh, yeah, I forgot. There's this guy in the prison. And so Pharaoh has Joseph come to him. And the, the short of what happens is Pharaoh tells Joseph his dream. And Joseph tells him the meaning of his dream. He gives credit to God. But the meaning is that there will be seven years of plenty, Crops that are busting at the seams, crops everywhere, just outpouring of plenty. And then right after that, there will be seven years of famine that will absolutely ravage and devastate the land. And it will be so bad that everybody will immediately forget the seven good years. They'll be forgotten. And so he tells Pharaoh to find an intelligent and wise man and put him in charge of the land. And then he gives them a game plan of exactly what they need to do. And, and Pharaoh is amazed. He says, is there anybody in all of Egypt who has the spirit of God on him so much like this man Joseph? And so he gives him a wife and he puts Joseph in charge. Second to nobody but Pharaoh alone, which is kind of crazy. This prisoner, this Hebrew slave, he puts up in the position of second in command. And so Joseph kind of guides them through these years, storing away all the extras, all the plenty that they had those first seven years. And when the famine hits and devastates the land, Joseph is there to save the day. And he was about 30 
when he was appointed as overseer. So he's likely been in Egypt for about 13 years. He's been separated from his family for 13 years when he is first put into this position. And the famine is so bad, it doesn't just happen in Egypt, but it happens in all the surrounding areas, even where they're from, in Hebron, which is about 415 miles away from Egypt. And it brings Joseph's family back because they need to get food. And there's a whole other story in chapter 42 that we are not going to have time to go over. But in this, Joseph's earlier dreams of all his brothers and family bowing down to him are fulfilled. Um, Joseph and his family are united once again. Joseph doesn't even have his brothers killed. That's good. And his father, Jacob, along with the rest of the family, come in Egypt to live. And in the years of famine, the people of the land, including Joseph's family, end up selling all that they have, including themselves. They sell themselves as slaves to Pharaoh simply so that they could survive. And they're happy to do this because the famine is so bad. But this kind of sets the stage for the Exodus in where God's people are enslaved for 400 years before Moses is raised up to take them out. So another 400 years that God is with people, but sometimes we go through suffering. So that's kind of the story of Joseph in a nutshell. I want to kind of zoom this lens out a little bit. I want to take some note of a few things. So these are just kind of big picture. I think it's good because it gives us a, a representation of who God is. Number one, God is a faithful God who keeps his promises. He's a faithful God who keeps his promises. God promised he would bless Abraham, give him many descendants, and through him the nations would be blessed. And we see this beginning to happen through Joseph. Now, obviously, the ultimate blessing is Jesus, as Jesus comes from Abraham's seed, but his people would be a blessing. And through Joseph, God blesses the nations. He saves them from famine, and he's blessing the nations through Joseph. Number two, God is sovereign. And works in our circumstances to orchestrate his divine will. And that doesn't mean that everything that happens to you is God's will. I want you to know that. Like God doesn't make bad things happen to you just because like he can be glorified all the time. He'll use it and he'll work in it. But we are victims of sin. And sin happens. Sin doesn't just affect me. When I sin, it doesn't just affect me. It affects everybody around me. And there's a cascading thing. There's generations and generations of sin. And sometimes we're just victims of this result of what sin has done in our life. And it doesn't mean that God willed it to happen, but it happened. But even in that, he can work through it. He can work in our circumstances. So even when it seems like life is falling completely apart and things are completely out of control, like it's never at the point where God cannot break in and reach in and do what he wants to do. God continually reaches out to humanity, breaking into our lives to reveal himself. He does this again and again. And we observe God is with Joseph throughout the story. We see God appearing in dreams to Pharaoh and his servants, alerting them of what is coming so that they can step into his means of protection. And this is a constant thing. Again, God is continually breaking into our world. And now let's zoom in a little bit and look at Joseph. Yeah? All right. Joseph is flawed, just like us. He was flawed, just like us. Daddy's boy with all the trappings, all the stuff that happened with that. He was filled with pride and arrogance his early years. 
And we could make the argument that he was just naive and kind of uh, emotionally not intelligent, but I think later on that kind of shows that it's not true. He was arrogant and prideful. But in his years as a slave, I think God was working in him to build a humility in him and transform him so that he could rise up to do what he used him to do. He was flawed just like us. A lot of the same trappings that we have. Joseph ran from temptation. Joseph ran from temptation. Uh, He had great integrity. God is with him. He was given charge of all Potiphar's house. I think he could have easily taken advantage of the situation. Could have taken advantage of Potiphar. Could have done things with his wife. And probably nobody would have known. At least for a time. But I love his heart in this. How could I do this evil thing and sin against God? Because Joseph avoided situations that could get him into trouble. And I know sometimes, like, I'm a little hesitant, and sometimes I'll kind of flirt with temptation. I'll let it just kind of simmer in my mind for a little bit, kind of think, and just let it take a root. And that's dangerous, because once that happens, it's harder to get out. It's harder to resist it. And it's so good to take the example of Joseph when he ran from it immediately. He went around it. He avoided it like the plague. And I think we could all learn from Joseph's lesson, right? After being wrongfully accused of adultery and thrown into prison, Joseph continued to do what is right. He continued to do what is right. And I don't know about you, but have you ever done everything right and been the victim of circumstances and just said, you know, screw it. I'm just going to do what I want to do from now on. So I remember when I was about 12 or 13, and, and my dad left my mom. They were separated for about a year. We thought they were going to get a divorce. But I remember in that time, like, you know, I was raised in a church family. I knew God. I knew all the right things. But when that happened, like, something just kind of broke inside me. And I said, you know, screw it. I just, I'm going to do what I want to do. The hell with everybody else. I don't even care. You ever been there? Anger does that. And sometimes it makes it hard to think clearly. It makes it hard to, to do the right things. And the, the, we end up doing these stupid, self-destructive things in the process. And a lot of times they, they're hurting us more than they're hurting anybody else. You know what I'm talking about? Things like drinking or binge eating, driving recklessly, putting our lives at risk, or blowing up relationships. Do you think Joseph was angry? Do you think he was angry? Because we can't forget he was human just like we are. He had the same kinds of emotions that we do. He struggled with the same types of things. Surely he was angry. And as Pastor John said last week from Ephesians 4.26, Be angry! Just go ahead and be angry, but don't sin. And I love the way the NLT says it. It says, don't sin by letting anger control you. But that's a lot easier said than done, isn't it? Especially in the heat of the moment, man. You just want to throw something. You want to punch something. Maybe that's the male response. Women probably want to do something a little different. But just, it can consume you. And I think it's just so good if we can just kind of sit back and just wait before we do anything. But Joseph continued to do what was right, even in his anger, 
And I think if we can just maybe find a friend that we can trust, that can speak sense in love and isn't going to get us all worked up and getting us doing stupid things, that's a good thing. Or if we just spend some time alone and just seek God in that, seek his presence, which again is probably one of the hardest things to do in those moments. But it can change everything. In spite of his circumstances, Joseph continued to trust God and walk with God. In spite of everything. And this is interesting to me, and I think this is the question that we have to ask. Like, why? Why? Why would he do that? Everything just kind of fell apart, and then he continued to trust God through it all. Ripped away from his family, enslaved only to gain some sense of control, just to have it ripped all away again, and thrown into prison. Yet he walked with God. He leaned into God. Why? And these are kind of things that we might want to wrestle with in Scripture. It's not right in the text, but we might ask, like, what's going on? And so you might come to a different conclusion than I have, but this is kind of where I have landed. I think Joseph accepted his circumstances, and he surrendered his fate and desires to God. He accepted how things were. And you know, some of us, we, me too, like we get so angry and so stressed trying to control everything. All these things are happening all these things, and we want everything to happen just so, but they're beyond our control. We have no say. We have no influence. We have nothing over them, but we're trying to make them all fixed, right? And trying to do this thing so we have some sense of control, and in this process, we just, ah! There's so much stress, but if we can just simply allow those kinds of things, those things that we can't control, and just surrender to God and say, God, you know what? You got this. I'm going to let this go, and I'm just going to do what you have for me. God, show me your heart in this. Show me your heart in this. Show me what you have for me in this. That changes the game. It's the decision to surrender. And you know when Jesus says, like, can take my yoke upon you? My, my burden is easy. My yoke is light. I think a lot of that comes from this place of surrender. Because we can just let things go so much that he just wants us to let go. And we can just focus on the moment, focus on what he has for us, and it brings peace. It brings peace. And the thing that I find amazing in all of this is that I don't think Joseph really had a great understanding of who God is. I don't. This is the ancient Near East. This is just when God is beginning to reveal himself, right? There's so much that, like, the ancient Near East had, like, warped senses of God, and we can see some of this kind of come out in how Israel thought about God. But we didn't really get a sense of who God really was until Jesus came. That is when Jesus, when God was fully displayed. Paul writes in Colossians, he is the visible image of the invisible God. The author of Hebrews says Jesus expresses the very character of God. So we know who God is because of Jesus. We can look at God and know what he's like because we can see a picture of Jesus. Jesus himself said, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. 
And I find it's a lot easier to surrender to a God who I know loves me with an unconditional, sacrificial love that was displayed on the cross than it would be to some God that I don't know that he's got, that he's looking out for me. And that just amazes me. Can we trust God enough to accept our circumstances and surrender to his will? Surrender to this God who loves us with, un, with a sacrificial love, not trying to have our own way, not trying to control and force everything, but just to allow ourselves to surrender. And that is something that I'm continually trying to do. It's not like you've just arrived and it happens. I think it's a day-by-day, moment-by-moment kind of thing. Sometimes I don't handle it very well. I see some heads nodding. I don't know if that's from experience about me not handling this very well or if it's relating. Maybe both. That's reality. And last I want us to see Joseph struggled. Joseph struggled just like we do. And Joseph is one of those guys, like when you first read him, it's like you almost have this tendency to think he was kind of superhuman, like just doing all the right things and just kind of above everything. But recognize none of this was easy for him. And I think he lived with this thing of rejection for his entire life. See, at the end of chapter 41, before the, the, the years of famine come, he's given a wife, and he has two sons. And the... The names that he gives him speak so much about where he is. He named his first son Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my troubles and everyone in my father's family. And there's heartbreak that's going in right up until that moment, and I know what happened after that. It's not like he forgot in that moment, because then he has son number two, and he calls him Ephraim. And Ephraim means God has made me fruitful in this my land of grief. Joseph struggled all through it. And and there's this thing, when Joseph's brothers came to buy food, Joseph was able to recognize who they were, but they didn't know who he was. I think he looked like an Egyptian. They had no idea who he was. And so as we read this, we see all of these emotions that Joseph is struggling with, uh, like anger, intense feelings of anger, and mistrust, and sadness. And ultimately, forgiveness. And you know what? Like, I think Joseph is one of those people that never really fit in. Because once he was sold, he he was a prisoner. He was looked upon as, like, scum, as property. And even when he was an overseer, like, he didn't really belong. I don't think he was ever really accepted as an Egyptian. He wasn't accepted as an elite. He was a Hebrew. And even when his family came back, he's still in this weird place where he's not with them either. He's like, he's different. It's just this place of isolation and loneliness. And yet he comes to a place in his life where he tells his brothers when they're afraid that that he's going to have them killed. He says, like, you intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. And he learns to forgive. That's kind of incredible. Can we look at God and recognize even in our stuff, even in our circumstances, He is working all things out for our good because He loves us? 
Is it something that we can let go of whatever's happening? Can we trust? Can we trust? In liver, because it was normal within the